Hello and welcome to a special episode of A Health Podacy. It's part of a new speaker series from Health Affairs, uh, where we focus on in-depth conversations with influential health policy experts in Washington, D.C. and beyond. Now, this is a live interview, and with that comes all the trappings of a live recording. So some of the audio might sound a little different to regular A Health Podacy listeners. If you want to know who's up next on our speaker series, Subscribe to our Health Affairs Today or Health Affairs Sunday update newsletters. And with that, let's start the show. Good morning, or I guess good afternoon for many of you. Uh, My name is Laura Tolan, and um, I am a senior editor at Health Affairs. Thank you all for joining us um, in the the latest in our series of Lunch and Learn discussions. Um, As you can see, I am not Alan Weil. Um, Alan was going to be uh, moderating this session for us, but was got stuck in the uh, snowstorm out, out in Virginia and is without um, Wi-Fi and cellular. So I will be filling in today um, for Alan. Um, today's Lunch and Learn is going to focus on the findings in the recent report from the Office of the Actuary at CMS. The article uh, was called National Healthcare Spending in 2020 growth driven by federal spending in response to the COVID-19 pandemic uh, by Micah Hartman and and colleagues. Uh, For decades, Health Affairs has really been proud to be able to work with CMS to publish the biannual reports based on the national um, health spending data, uh, with December being uh, traditionally has been a historical look, and then an article in the spring is more forward-looking with projections about the next decade or so. Uh, a tremendous amount of work goes into preparing these reports, and the results are really invaluable for policymakers and analysts. I know I rely on them heavily in my work, as do many of you. This year's report was especially significant because it's the first uh, national health spending report we've had that actually reflects the, the changes that were brought about in the economy and healthcare in general um, due, to the, due to the pandemic. Uh, The 2020 findings were first released by Health Affairs as an ahead-of-print article on December 15th, and I would definitely encourage everybody to um, look up that article for the details. I'm not going to go into the details of of the findings um, on this call um, very much. We're just really, we're here to talk about the implications of them. Um, So what we wanted to do is really go beyond the numbers today um, and, and hear about what does it all mean? Um, to do that, we've asked two good friends of health affairs to join us, economists Sherry Gleed and Craig Garthwaite, um, and they will be bringing some analysis and commentary, and I suspect, if we're lucky, maybe some difference of opinion. So I am honored to be able to introduce our guests today, um, and then I'll dive into the data a little bit. So we're going to start with Sherry. Sherry Gleed holds a PhD in economics from Harvard University and is the dean of the Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service at New York University. Uh, Before that, she had many other uh, positions, um, including um, she was professor of health policy and management at Columbia's uh, School of Public Health, and she previously served as the assistant secretary for planning and evaluation at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and is a member of many august groups, um, including the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, the National Academy of Social Insurance, as, as well as others. Craig Garthwaite is also joining us, um, holds a PhD in economics from the University of Maryland and is the Herman R. Smith Research Professor in Hospital and Health Services and a Professor of Strategy and the Director of the Program on Healthcare at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Craig is an applied economist whose research examines the business of healthcare with a focus on the interaction between private firms and public policies. So 
everybody knew that 2020 health spending figures were going to be way out of line uh, with previous trends. Um, but the final numbers are, I think, nevertheless, fairly stunning. Um, national health spending increased 9.7% in 2020, following 4.3% uh, the previous year. And in fact, following about a decade of, of growth rates that were between two and a half and about four and a half. So um, this is, this is a, a really big increase and it is in fact the highest growth rate that we've seen since 2002. Um, some of the key numbers from this report, total spending reached $4.1 trillion, which is up from 3.8 trillion last year or the, in 2019. Um, and now total spending on healthcare represents 19.7% of the GDP, so nearly 20%. What I think is most interesting about these numbers, and I think probably what we're going to spend a lot of time on today, is that this, this massive uptick is almost entirely driven by increased federal funding in a category which normally in the national health spending accounts is really tiny and is relegated to other. Um, it, and it, it, so it's, it's federal public health spending and investment. And normally, it's just a tiny sliver on the pie chart. Um, 2020, it's enormous and basically is made up of the Provider Relief Fund, uh, the PPP loans, and federal public health spending. So it's really anomalous year in that sense. According to the report, if you exclude all of that federal spending in the other category, we actually had a spending growth rate of only 1.9%, which is, is essentially stunningly low compared to uh, where, where spending has been um, in the last decade. A little bit more detail on um, what was driving the what drove the increase and what was what was going on in a couple sectors for both hospital and physician spending um, they both increased at a rate that was pretty similar to what has happened in the previous years so there wasn't a dip in spending on hospitals and physicians but almost all of that increased spending um, on hospitals and physicians was as I mentioned this this sort of other category so it wasn't on direct care it was um, the the um, PPP and the Provider Relief Fund. Looking at it by payers, um, it's very much aligned with what I just said, since the spending was not in particular on direct care, um, spending growth by payer for uh, Medicare and for, uh, for both pri for private insurance and Medicare actually slowed. Um, and it did increase a little bit for Medicaid, although that was entirely driven, it appears, um, by increased enrollment. Uh, not by per capita increased spending. So we really saw this anomalous year in which um, use of care went went down across the board, but spending went went up. So that's that's kind of a high level view. And again, I encourage everybody to um, to take a look at the report to get um, to get the details. And there's a lot more in it, obviously. But with that, um, I'm going to turn it over to Sherry first to give us some reactions to those, and then we'll go to Craig. Thank you, Laura. Um, thank you for inviting me to do this. This is actually, a, a, I've commented on the actuaries report several times, but this is actually a very funny one because at the beginning of April 2020, I actually got a call from JAMA asking if I would write something to predict the likely impact of COVID-19 on aggregate U.S. health expenditures. Um, I'm really, really bad at saying no to things, but even so, I can only imagine that I was shell-shocked and that I agreed to do it and I got Helen Levy to help me um, write a paper. And I'm going to read the money point out of our paper verbatim because like, this is never going to happen to me in my life again. The midpoint of these various estimates suggests that the pandemic might plausibly lead to national health spending in 2020 that is 10% higher than in 2019, 
And we also estimated that healthcare would comprise 20% of GDP in 2020. Even the stop clock is right twice a day, and Helen and I were right. Um, it turns out the actuaries estimate that it was 9.7% higher and that it's a 19.7% share of GDP. And I think we could have rounding error here. Um, but you know, I would not hire me to pick stocks for you. Because um, we we came to those conclusions with completely incorrect reasoning. Um, we thought that the increase in spending would happen because there would be, you know, an increase in utilization in actual service delivery because all these people were sick. Um, it, remember that we wrote this in the beginning of April of 2020. And in fact, the reduction in use um, of services lasted a very, very much longer than we had anticipated. And also, we spent a lot less money treating COVID than we had anticipated. Um, our estimate itself was just saved by the fact that the actuaries counted all that money pumped into the healthcare sector um, as actual healthcare spending, even though no services were delivered, rather than like an asterisk accounting transfer. Um, clearly, it's the right way to do it from an accounting perspective. I totally respect the way that they did it. That's how you have to do it. But it is indeed an odd result. Helen and I were, were not right. Um, we can debate whether the amount of money that was pumped into the system by all those programs was appropriate and certainly whether it was correctly targeted. And there's been lots and lots of debate about that question. But I actually wanna go back to the conclusions that Helen and I drew back then, because um, as good sensible economists, we thought that mostly what we wanted to do was talk about the principle of the thing and not actually make estimates even though we had to. Um, and I think that, that the conclusions we drew actually are, are still relevant today. Um, the first is actually, you know, economists have always been really skeptical about the importance of the share of GDP measure. I mean, that's a thing that economists have always sort of shrunk from. Um, and COVID, I think, really illustrates at least two problems with even thinking about what is the share, how do we think about that share of healthcare spending in the GDP? Uh, you know, surely it would have been better if actual healthcare spending had been higher in 2020 than it was. It is not in any way a good thing that spending went up by only 1.9%. If we had had better ways to reduce morbidity and mortality, if we had enough ventilators and PPE early on, if we had not deferred some of the necessary and routine care in the early years of days of the crisis, you know, we, a lot of care is effect, ineffective and wasteful, but a lot of care is not ineffective and wasteful. And while it is really important to identify how I value care and design payment systems that reward value and make sure prices accurately reflect value, spending itself is not really the great marker here. So I think one thing we learned is that like, just having a lower number in that numerator of the share of GDP that goes to healthcare is not necessarily a good thing. And then, you know, the second piece of it is the cost of treating patients with COVID, which is the way we always think about this stuff. It was a really minor component of the economic burden of the pandemic. The much greater costs were in the denominator of that GDP share and outside the GDP calculation altogether, the human consequences of disease for individuals, for their families, and the enormous, crazy cost of the precautions taken by individuals and societies to avoid the disease. So the cost of COVID as a share of GDP is way, way higher than the impact on health spending itself. So if we were actually trying to come up with an estimate of that, um, it would be a much bigger number. It is not generally true in high-income countries. We don't think very much about how spending on healthcare has direct effects on the denominator. Um, but it certainly does have effects on well-being that we also don't account for. Um, and it, it makes, you know, you really think when you get this sort of extreme case about what is the right way about of thinking about health accounting? How do we think about the effects on people's well-being as well as the effects on actual spending? So the other point I wanted to make, and 
maybe a surprising one is that despite all the craziness of the U.S. healthcare system and the U.S. government, we managed to have established and put into place safety nets around the health system that worked remarkably effectively. Um, I think one of the really striking things about the report says it, it's that despite the huge economic downturn and all the disasters, um, the number of uninsured people actually fell. Um, that is testimony to the value of the Medicaid expansions, um, to the marketplaces, to the ACA, other changes. And it is really in sharp contrast to the experience of the Great Recession when uninsurance rates went up. So um, we've made a structural change in the U.S. healthcare system, and it has really benefited in this moment of crisis. I think it, 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 has, it has shown itself to be significant in this moment of crisis. Um, the second point, which I feel a little more ambivalently about, and I'm sort of curious how Craig will respond to it, is that Congress acted really swiftly to protect the healthcare system in the face of COVID, um, not just the parts that were directly impacted, like the hospitals, but the whole system. Um, and that reflects a lot of things. Um, they certainly work to protect the economy, but the fact that the denominator didn't grow up as much as the numerator says not quite so much for the rest of the economy as for the healthcare sector. Um, one of the things Congress was clearly concerned about was maintaining surge capacity, maintaining the sort of structural integrity of the system going forward. Um, but also, you know, healthcare is different and Congress responds to it differently. Um, and that's a thing to think about, even though I'm not sure which way to think about it right now. So let me stop and turn it over to Craig, who maybe has a lot. Yeah, so thank you uh, for including me and Sherry, thanks for joining. Um, I guess I'll pick up where you left off to have some continuity as more of a conversation. I, I think it does say a lot that Congress reacted so swiftly to that and actually acted, I think, more swiftly and perhaps more completely to that than they did to the toll on a whole variety of other small businesses that were just decimated by the recession and arguably could have had more of an effect on public health. Well, I, I think it's good that we protect hospitals. We should note that we allowed restaurants and bars outside of PPP, which was perhaps incomplete for this, to really founder on their own, um, which then had them making decisions that maybe weren't in the best interest of public health in terms of having to reopen, to allow people in, that that led to more, more spread of the disease and create a much more contentious conversation around COVID. Um, so I think it speaks as much to Congress caring about health being different as health being exceptionally politically powerful. Um, and what we care about going forward then might be a question about what does that mean for any type of meaningful reform that takes something from the healthcare system, if that's what people want. And it seems like a lot of people do want that number to go down. Sherry and I are on this panel with Laura, and we started the whole panel with this debate about what is the, the sort of right number for healthcare spending. Uh, and some people think it needs to be lower, and we can have a debate about that. But I just don't, I think that the politics around the pandemic show that we'll do anything to protect hospitals. And in particular, it seems, perhaps this is inadvertent, but to protect the successful and rich hospitals more than the poor safety net hospitals. And there's been some interesting research and Amitabh Chandra and others have, done, have worked this with Marcy Aslan, I believe too, um, on the, the payments weren't particularly well targeted to the people who really got hammered the most by this. Um, now some of those about expediency and how you write these laws. Um, and some of those about who I think has the ear of different legislators and it's probably large academic medical centers more than it is true safety net hospitals. Taking a step back from the sort of where, where, where Sherry ended and think about the report overall, it is kind of a weird report to think about. Um, this is, ideally, this will be a once in our lifetime event to have a pandemic of this size. 
I know people like to say like, this is the first of the pandemics we'll have, but like, this is a pretty unique event and we see them happen. So, you know, the, the 1918 flu and then this, of this magnitude of really just, you've got to hit everything right from a, from a virus standpoint to have this happen. Um, and so we get this really big number for healthcare spending as a part of GDP. We get this really big increase in federal expenditures. And I guess I'm less interested in the report itself but where we think we're gonna end up in two years from now. Is this sort of a change in some equilibrium behavior on behalf of people, or is this a one-time surge in federal expenditures, a decline in GDP that results in this 20% number? Um, I, th I think it's gonna be less long-term of an effect than people, than people might be thinking. Um, one, I would like if this made us think more about antivirals, anti-infectives, particularly anti-infectives and antibiotics because the next pandemic could very well not be a virus and we are woefully unprepared for that. I'd like to think we invest more in public health. I'm just not certain we're very good at that as a country um, of, of saying like we need to invest because 10 to 15 years from now, we might need it. Um, we are unwilling to overinvest to have extra capacity. And I don't know if that's a political point or a sense of frugality or a sense of political retribution or whatever it is, but even in the pandemic, we, you know, we did a great job developing vaccines and a lot of that money is in there for warp speed is in that, in that 9.7% number, but we did less than we should have. We should have built a ton more manufacturing capacity. We should be building more manufacturing capacity. Now we should be building more capacity for antiviral treatments like uh, Pfizer's treatment and Merck's treatment. We should have more people working on that, but some of that money is going to go to waste. And that's kind of what public health is. It's, it's an insurance capacity that we want to have. I just don't know if we're going to be willing to keep investing in that uh, going forward. The other behavior that is interesting is in the report, but I sort of want to see where we end up here and see what Sherry thinks about this as well. You know, we did see this decline in the use of medical services. We're going to figure out how much of that was getting rid of low value versus high value care. And economists for a generation will probably now spend time using this as some event to justify some minutia of a study. But we also sent a lot of people to telehealth. Um, and you know, as I teach at a business school, um, every year I get a new crop of students who, who have told me for 10 years now that telehealth will be sort of the future of healthcare going forward. It never has been. And part of that was we were at kind of an equilibrium where people weren't using it. Doctors weren't sure if patients wanted it. Patients weren't sure if doctors were going to be able to provide it. Now everyone to one degree or another probably has gotten a chance to, to sample telehealth. And we're going to figure out, you know, how much do people like it? They'll like it less than the peak number during the pandemic. But we're going to end up above where we were before. And that's going to necessitate us thinking about how do we think about paying for telehealth? How do we think about, you know, what, what's an appropriate visit? How do we think about fraud for telehealth, where it could become easier potentially to you know, have wide scale fraud uh, with that than it is with actually having to you know, manufacture office visits? And so I think it's be interesting to see where that behavior changes on the other modalities of access to care. Are you a healthcare professional working in the Medicare Advantage space? Rise National is the event for you. Rise National will bring over 1,600 attendees safely together in Nashville this March for face-to-face -face networking, benchmarking, regulatory updates, digital healthcare delivery trends, and technology advancements. Visit www.risenational.com and use code JOIN100 to save $100 on registration today. Racism is a fundamental cause of health disparities for racial and ethnic minority groups. 
And yet racism, especially structural racism, remains understudied in healthcare research. The February issue of Health Affairs focuses on racism and health and will cover topics such as how racism damages health, measuring the health impacts of structural racism, and racial bias in digital health. Check the show notes to order your copy today. Is there any, are there any points there that specifically that you wanted to respond to? Well, I think that um, there's sort of an interesting connection between the point Craig makes about public health and the pandemic response, which is it's not only the question of whether you'll get more money, but whether Congress is capable of targeting that money where it is really needed, where it really needs to go. Um, and I do worry that we'll wind up with a bunch of spending that isn't going to be targeted to the things that really constitute that kind of surge capacity, um, which isn't very politically attractive always. So I think that's important. I think on telehealth, we're already seeing some, you know, backslide. I don't, back, you know, some some reversion. Although the the place where we're 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 not seeing as much reversion, which will be really interesting looking forward, is uh, behavioral health and how that's going to play out will be very interesting. It's also I, I should know a place where we see no real evidence yet on efficacy, and I'm sure someone's going to now write me and say, oh no, I've got you know this observational study of my patients for my startup, and everyone's doing great. Um, but behavioral health, if you think about like where I'm worried about potential, not necessarily purely fraud, but just low, truly low value care, it's going to be in online behavioral health. Well, I just don't think we know if it works right now. And it's a, it, it's going to be a place that we really want to monitor what's going on there and how, how it's paid for. I'm actually not so worried about whether it works. There are so many studies of different modalities of behavioral health. And if you do things right, they work and they, you know, like there are, there's so much there's there's good bad good and bad in person and yes. and and internet telehealth. I think the big concern is that without any time cost at all of doing this, you know, the potential for in for low value care covered by insurance, I think is 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 really there. Yeah, I also think as we go forward, we think about that. Like, I think Sharon and I both have used the term surge capacity. Um, I think it's also we care we want to carefully think about what we mean by that. We have done a good job over time winnowing the number of hospital beds that we have because we didn't need them because of outpatient surgeries and things like that. And then we found out that actually when things go really bad, maybe we want some of that capacity. And that capacity, I want to note, just so we're clear, is not just the bed. It's like all the human capacity that goes around it as well. I think we want to think about what does surge capacity look like going forward? You know, it's sometimes I would see reports in the media about, you know, the horror that we were sending, we were setting up uh, a field hospital at McCormick Center here in Chicago, or the ship coming into the harbor in New York, that might be exactly what we want, right? The ability to stand up when necessary capacity to treat people, but not an ongoing fixed cost that's unused and just wasteful in every time period. And so thinking what surge capacity looks like, I think is hopefully what I'd like to see us going forward here, as opposed to I've seen some people say, well, this, you know, for-profit medicine has led us to have too few beds and that set us up for a public health problem. I don't think we want a ton of excess capacity in the system. No, we want to be able to build it when we need it. One of the things that COVID really showed us is that the distributional implications of spending in the U.S. healthcare system, um, which are pretty shocking, actually. The amount, the difference in the amount of money that different hospitals were effectively getting for treating COVID patients was startling. And the hospitals that we're dealing with the most vulnerable populations were getting the lowest per capita rates on average for it. Um, so one of the things to think about in this is also how do we how do we mesh a pretty inequitable in many ways healthcare system 
with a more equitable, at least public health response, which is, which is I think, really pretty critical. The hospitals, it was all very well that there was a hospital ship in New York, but the fact that some of the hospitals in New York were, were way overcrowded and others were not, that's a, that's a, a different problem that we were very bad at solving. I, I, I want to go back to something that you both raised. Uh, I have a question um, of my own that I was thinking about, and you both touched on it. Um, in that we, so of course, um, we we know that the pandemic was brutally hard on on physicians and hospitals in terms of the human toll and what 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 they faced there. But but from this report, it does look like financially, you know, on average, they did okay. You know, do you think that that suggests that the size of the government intervention here intervention was too big? Um, I, and I know you've said that you think maybe it was targeted incorrectly. Um, so I want to hear more about that. Um, what does this imply for conversations that we've been having, say, on the Health Spending Council about um, the need to switch to prepayment, capitation, other kinds of payment, especially for physicians and particularly for primary care, um, in order to keep that system afloat. So what does this shed any light on that? Does it change the way you think about um, payment reform um, going forward like that in particular for physicians? So we did some work, actually some international comparative work to look at how hospitals and physicians managed in different countries under different payment systems um, through COVID. And you know, if we had had a fully capitated system, um, it would have been pretty easy to predict what the effect of COVID on national health expenditures would be. Um, it would have been nothing, right? It would just we would already have baked it in and and all of the gains and losses would have been felt by the providers. We wouldn't have needed the whole um, PPP system because they would have actually been sitting pretty, actually, because they would be getting the capitation rates they had anticipated with much lower utilization. Um, I, I actually am nervous about drawing too many conclusions about spending from COVID. Um, you know, lawyers say hard cases make bad law and we don't I could be wrong on this. God knows I have no window into the future, but let us hope that this is a one in a hundred years pandemic, right? Um, we don't want to build our healthcare system to operate at all times as if tomorrow will be COVID. That just is, cannot be the right way to do it. I, I think we what we want to learn from this is about things like distribution. It is about things like uncertainty. It is about um, preparedness rather than 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 a level of spending, which I, I you know, was PPP too big? I have no idea. I, am, I, I don't even have a framework in which to ask, answer the question. Yeah, um, so I, I would say, I don't think PPP was too big. I think PPP was too small. Uh, I have no problem putting my moral judgment on top of it, Sherry. Sherry's a much more careful economist than I was. She doesn't have a framework, but I think, I think if we're gonna, as a society, ask people to bear the cost of externalities, there's a role of government to come in and help compensate them for that externality. And that's, that's true across a wide variety of places where we see market failures like that. When it comes to, you know, I agree, I could not agree with sharing more that we do not want to over-rotate on the pandemic. So I don't want to design a payment system that, that reflects what happened during the pandemic, but I do want to look at the pandemic as an event that helped illustrate something we've talked about for a long time, which is that hospitals primarily, and a lot of providers make more money when people use more care for good or for bad. Um, and that the people who did better financially during the pandemic are people that were in some type of capitated uh, model, um, be they you know, risk-bearing primary care or MA or something like that. 
Um, and we'll see going forward. I don't think anyone has the answer to the question yet about what that what those systems look like in terms of their financial returns over the next three to five years. In theory, the reduction in the use of all these medical services should have some negative health consequences. The lack of cancer screenings, the lack of blood pressure control. If it doesn't, then we might want to have some conversations about are we using too much care in different settings and what we pay people? And so I think it's not what we learned during the pandemic, but sort of what we learn over the next three years about how this plays out that might help us think about systems and how we want to pay for things with always the caveat that we want to, to the degree we can, separate out what's purely the pandemic and what is the pandemic illustrating other aspects of the healthcare system we might want to address. Um, I think that should be the focus of every researcher, every politician, every policy expert, is to try and cleave out those two points. Thank you. We've got, we've got quite a few questions that have come in in the Q&A, and I'm going to try to um, pull out a couple here. This question is uh, relative, uh, apropos to what you were just talking about. So do the panelists' views on stockpiling differ from their views on hospital capacity? What thoughts do they have about preparedness stockpiling? How should policymakers think about the cost versus benefit in terms of preparedness, especially with regards to stockpiling? I think stockpiling is such a hard thing because it assumes that you know what the next pandemic is going to be and and you don't know. Like the one thing I will say almost for sure is that it's not going to be exactly the same as this one if there is another one. And so what happens is you put a bunch of stuff in the stockpile, then it gets all dusty and moldy. It's no longer any good. Um, you've built up a lot of capacity to build up that stockpile at a point in time. And then when you actually need the capacity, it's not there. Much more useful to think about how you can convert manufacturing capacity to be able to produce things quickly, how to be more agile. Um, that just seems much more useful than, than just loading warehouses. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we're gonna, we, we face the danger with stockpiling and fighting the last war. And we are going to like be perfectly prepared for the next respiratory virus that comes around. And we're going to get hit by something that's a bacteria or some, or some other type of condition. Um, so instead of stockpiling, I think this idea of agility and this idea of being able to use the private sector, uh, I think is really important. Um, it's why I have been um, quite disheartened by the criticism of Pfizer and Moderna and other companies that did commit, maybe Pfizer more than Moderna to be fair, but commit risk capital to try and be ready for and then attack this pandemic. And now, you know, they're getting enlisted by various organizations as CEOs as the, you know, the worst CEOs in America in the past year, and that they're just profiteering. I, I think we want the incentive that, and I think we the government did actually a pretty good job on this with the advanced market commitments that we will pay for things when a pandemic comes, if you develop them, even if we don't need them. Now, in this case, we ended up needing them, there was another state of the world that we could have been in if Omicron never came out, where Pfizer developed a small molecule treatment for this as an antiviral that we didn't really need as much as it might turn out we actually need it. Um, and we still want to make sure we pay for that. Uh, I think we want to follow through on our commitments and we want to demonstrate to business that if you respond to this, we will take your market risk out of this. We will take as much of your scientific risk out as we want. Now, the, I think it's fair that the more we take out of your risk, maybe the little less return you get. And that's why I think there's an important distinction here between how we talk about Pfizer and how we talk about Moderna, where we really did de-risk a lot more of Moderna's efforts than we did Pfizer's. And so you might want to talk about the return being different, but that conversation always has to happen before you give people the money and before they start acting. All this attempt to revisit these questions ex post, I think should be very scary, not for COVID-19, but for whatever the next 
virus is going to be or the next pandemic is going to be. Missouri, you were, there was a lot of nodding, Missouri. Particular comment on that? I, I agree. I mean, there is no way that we are we are going to have to rely on some aspects of the private sector to respond to the next pandemic that comes around just because even this is, you know, no matter how much you think government should be doing this, the range and variety and diversity of potential risks is so huge. You, you are going to have to have private sector partners. And the only way you'll, you'll have them is if you're a good partner to them, otherwise it's not gonna work. So if, you're, if your commitments are not credible, you're not gonna be able to use that resource. We're going to shift gears a little bit here. Um, there's a couple questions that have come in about that are asking you to to prognosticate. Um, so hopefully you'll be okay doing that for a minute. That's that's, that's Sherry's um, job now. She's she's an expert. She got within 03 percent of the right, right number. She was right. Um, questions about whether we should expect to see that delayed care um, is going to is going to come back to haunt us um, going forward. Um, um, and there was a question also about long COVID and how, you know, how we might prepare for that. Um, what are the implications of, of um, you know, the 2020 experience for our ability to, to adequately address that? Well, I would say in terms of the delayed care, um, a lot of it is not going to come back, right? It, it, the visits that didn't happen that are never going to happen. Um, and most of them didn't matter because most visits don't matter. I mean, that's just normal. Um, I, I don't think that the delayed care is going to, um, affect spending very much. I think there may be people whose health is negatively impacted by the fact that they didn't get care in a timely way. I mean, surely there are people whose diagnoses came later and who might've done better if they were treated earlier. But this kind of goes back to the point I'd made earlier, which is that the, neither the health spending nor the GDP number really capture most of the effective health care. Um, which are really on individuals' well-being. And that's the piece where if there is an effective delayed care, and I, I think Craig is right, there will be thousands, thousands of uh, research papers on this subject. If there's an effect on delayed care, it's not going to show up either in the GDP number or the health spending number in any big way, but it may show up significantly in people's lives. And, and I think that's really the question here. Which, and, and, and in some horrifying way, I sort of hope it does, because otherwise, why on earth are we spending all this money? It's good, it's good to see Sherry come back to being like really representing our profession well of like the dismal nature of the economist. I really hope that this shows up so we can, we can justify the spending we have on healthcare. But she's right. It, it's got to show up somewhere. Right. I mean, it's not. Otherwise, we really are spending too much money, both in qua on quantity, the quantity of medical care. So some of it's going to show up. I don't know if you'll be able to tease it out. I, I think Sherry will show up in the GDP number. You're just not going to be able to tease it out. You're never going to find everything else going on. It won't show up. I mean, you know, older people, people over 65 who could have been effectively treated for a disease and aren't, they're not going to show up in the GDP number. They're just. They'll show up in reduced Medicare spending. So like, you know, <laughs> we'll we see some benefit there. But uh, I think that, um, I mean, you, I think Sherry skipped the long COVID question. I'll answer it though. I want to note I'm not a medical provider, but I think that we're going to there's going to be a conversation, I think, related to disability and long COVID. I think it's going to become a conversation about what exactly is long COVID? I think it's a it's a pretty difficult area to think about defining um, what that condition is. It seems to be a constellation of things related. Um, there are studies that have some questions about, you know, 
a lot of people with long COVID don't appear to have had COVID and things like that. So I think I, I worry for, for our, whether our disability system is going to be capable of dealing with that question or not. Actually, I think the long COVID question is also a, a br- interesting in the broader sense that as economists and as analysts of the healthcare system, we don't really know what to do with these conditions that are really hard to classify and hard to treat. I mean, people seek a lot of care for them, and that is completely understandable. Um, but how should we even think about them? And uh, um, is it a good thing or a bad thing that people are seeking care? Do we want to facilitate that or not? Um, uh, we have a we have everything that we do in terms of thinking about the healthcare system is predicated on a kind of disease condition treatment pair. And these are situations that don't fit into that paradigm. And I think they're they're challenging in that way too. Person wants to know, what are the panelists' recommendations on spending and reform to ensure that the providers and settings that were not well-resourced during COVID get the resources they need, especially given the disparities and equities that, that we talked about? So what, you know, what is the policy lesson from this or what is the prescription? This, this is the answer. This is a question That's for the healthcare great spending question. council. So. That's a great question. And here, and let me just let me just frame it in a different way. Um, it has always been the case that there are rich hospitals and poor hospitals. That has been true in the United States forever. Um, I looked at the numbers in New York City, and some hospitals are getting rough, you know, three times as much per bed day as other hospitals because they the mix of private and Medicaid patients is such that they're just, you know. They, they have very high private pr- prices. They don't take very many Medicaid patients just because of location, not because they're turning them away, right? Just, just the way these things work out. This has always been true. Um, what happens when there's a pandemic is that um, people feel differently about this when it's COVID than when it's something else. I mean, we had these conversations, remember early in the pandemic about what would happen to uninsured people with COVID? It's like, well, why does it matter that the thing that is making them, that, that is racking up their bills is COVID? Was, is it less terrible to have the same, um, you know, a uh, uh, huge bill when it's for the flu, um, which we never worried about in the past, uh, also an infectious disease, so it's not an externalities issue. We, you know, we focus on these things in difficult times. We look and say it's terrible that people, that these hospitals are understaffed in difficult times. They were understaffed in good times too. It's a more general question about how much equity do we want to build into the system and how are we going to do that? I don't think it's a new question. It's just a newly visible question. Yeah, I mean, the, the new question might be, is there, is there a long-term harm from taking the, the shock from COVID um, that makes it hard for those hospitals to sort of survive going forward? I think we can address that question specifically, but then get to Sherry's broader question about you know, inequities between different types of hospitals. Um, it might require us to think differently about the Medicaid system overall, um, that maybe Medicaid, you know, Medicaid has sort of its, you know, component that's fee for service, its component that's sort of more fixed cost, disproportionate share payments. Maybe, you know, having it be that certain hospitals get more dish funding. We've often think about in the ACA is that these are substitutes for each other. And to some degree there are, but they also accomplish different goals. And there might be certain hospitals that we want to support more. There might be more of a conversation that we want to have about, how do we think about county and safety net hospitals and how we fund them? But if we're going to have that conversation, we might want to pair it with, if you are on Medicaid or you are uninsured, you don't get access to go everywhere. Maybe we direct you to sets of hospitals that look more like souped up FQHCs or something like that. 
Uh, so I think there is a conversation about inequities that we that we should have here, but it's a broader conversation than just COVID, as Sherry said. I actually want to make a point there, that, that uh, a broader point. The other thing that comes really out of the COVID experience is we've always known that hospitals are um, high fixed cost, low marginal cost businesses um, that we pay on an average cost basis, which creates all kinds of problems. And, and, it, and in some ways, all of that pandemic um, fiscal support really responded to that reality, right? That that um, it wasn't that the marginal cost of treatment had done anything particular. It was really that we couldn't cover fixed costs um, with average cost payment when you didn't have enough volume. Um, and the idea of using dish funds or some other funds to basically say, we need to be covering fixed costs in some places, that's really important. Um, maybe should lead us to be thinking more broadly about our hospital payment structure. Um, Two-part pricing might be a better way to go more broadly than this. Um, so I'm just gonna leave that. Uh, to think about two-part pricing, meaning paying for the capital costs separately and the and the marginal costs of an admission separately. Let me ask a question that just relates to that last one, but um, and you touched on it in the beginning. How do you think that the the pattern we saw in 2020 and potentially we're going to see another strange um, and anomalous pattern in 2021? Um, how do you think these years are going to affect uh, the 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 political and the public appetite to try to rein in healthcare spending. This is the big question, right? Again, asking you to speculate. Does this change the conversation? I think the drug I, companies get it. The drug companies are going to get a little more of a little more of a buy than they were expecting. Uh, yes and no. I mean, Biogen pretty much screwed all of that up with their with their Alzheimer's drug. So there there was some goodwill for a hot minute, and then it went away. Um, I think that like. Listen, the problem for healthcare spending has always been that a lot of spending is happening for hospitals and doctors, and everyone likes their hospital and doctor. Um, and I, I think, if anything, this might have solidified that feeling more, but it was a pretty strong feeling. And so anything that involves, like, if, if, your, if your healthcare plan is, is reducing the amount of spending that you have at your local hospital, I think the politics of that are just very bad. Now, I think it's got maybe gotten worse, but they were already so bad, I don't know if it could get worse. I think... It it is hard to cut healthcare spending. We just saw that. Um, and whether you should or not is a, let's just separate those two things. But as a reality, um, even if you were going to save these hospitals because you cared about the structure of the healthcare system, there were so many jobs that 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 politicians were concerned about saving. We should note, right, if you look at the report, it's not even like the, the non-federal health spending didn't go down, right? It just didn't grow by as much. Um, and so even, even in this setting, we didn't cut healthcare spending. Um, I, I just think, you know, even I think we had this debate on, on the council before about, you know, is our goal to reduce spending? I think our goal is always to get higher value, but even if you want to sort of cut spending, you're cutting it over a horizon by slowing the rate of growth. You're not actually reducing healthcare spending in the United States. Anyone thinks you're going to be able to do that, um, is going to end up sorely disappointed. We're possibly slowing it to the rate of growth of GDP, which again right. in, the, in 2020 is a number that doesn't that doesn't tell us a lot either. No. Question just came in about um, again looking forward. How do you think the healthcare worker shortage is going to impact um, costs and spending next year um, or in the in the years to come? This goes a little bit back to the steady state question. I mean, I don't I don't think we we didn't go into the pandemic with the healthcare worker shortage. The reason we have a healthcare worker shortage right now is a combination of a lot of very, very idiosyncratic things that are happening at this moment. Um, there may be 
we and I don't think we understand the great resignation and how that affects healthcare or anything else. Um, one of the issues here kind of goes back to Craig's point about surge capacity is um, is where the healthcare worker shortage is and how you think about um, local demand and supply um, equilibrating. Um, uh, that's a, I think a, 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 the sort of geographic issues in health in the healthcare worker shortage are probably going to take a little while longer to sort out. The overall issue, I think, if we put COVID behind us at some point, will resolve itself. <laughs> she says optimistically. Yeah, um, I mean, listen, I, I think that the e economists like talk about you know we, we have to get this so we see what the equilibrium is going to be. We got shortages all over the economy for workers right now. It's it's not just healthcare, and it's not going to be a long run response. So um, I don't, I'm not saying that we will end up with just the same number of healthcare workers we had before, but before we start trying to solve that problem, we have to figure out the magnitude and the nature of that problem. And that's, you know, if the if the shortage is in a bunch of uh, medical professions that you can train relatively quickly, then we can replenish that with new workers. If it's a shortage of surgeons or even pri primary care physicians or someone we're talking like seven, eight, 10 years to get someone in, now we might want to think about what we do to entice those people back into the healthcare economy. And so we have to get a, a sense of both the geographic and the occupational nature of the shortage before we can say what we're going to do about it or if we care about it. I want to ask one last question. Um, I'm giving you each like two minutes on it, um, and then we'll we'll wrap up. Looking at this report overall, um, what what is missing from these data? What what is the the, the big question about health spending that that this doesn't tell you? Um, either for this year or for the for the near term. So missing sounds a bit like a criticism. So I want to be careful on that. Okay, no, I don't mean it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the report does what the report does every year. It gives you a snapshot. Um, I think normally that snapshot is fine because that snapshot looks like a slightly modified version of the year before. And we sort of get the trend. And we, we string these together over time and we get some trend that's going on. And that gives us some information for how the how the economy is evolving. But I was struck looking at it, not so much by the increase in spending as a share of GDP, um, but just the fact that it's been so relatively flat or just slightly rising over time over the past 10 years. And so in that way, this report just isn't, isn't able to answer the thing we want to know, because no one can really answer it, which is what is the world two to five years from now going to look like? And that's the thing we want to know. And I just don't think it's not the report is missing. We just don't have enough data to answer that question yet about where we're gonna end up. Partly it depends on where the pandemic leaves us and then where you know we leave the pandemic. I totally agree with Craig. I, I guess I would also add that in general, a challenge with these reports is that it only really shows one side of the equation, which is how much are we spending? It doesn't really tell us much about what we're getting for it. And that does vary over time. I mean, I think economists would say a lot of that increase in spending over time is because we're, we're getting more. Um, but we don't see that in the report in any way. And here, um, I, I think it's particularly striking here where there's been this, where we, we really, this question of what was the value of what was lost and what was the value, you know, what, what's the value of a care foregone? Um, what happened to the marginal value of care that was delivered? I think those are actually important questions in terms of thinking about um, policy that this report, you know, it does what it does and that's not what it does. It's kind of unfortunate that we can't do a parallel report that says, and this is what you got for your money. Okay, well, thank you. We are getting near the end of our time here. So first, I want to thank um, both of you. I uh, really appreciate you spending the time with us to chat about this um, wide, wide ranging um, 
set of questions that you handled beautifully. You didn't disagree with each other as much as I, you know, might have hoped. <laughs> but, um, um, very much appreciate your participation. If you, for our audience, if you like this Lunch and Learn, um, visit healthaffairs.org um, and you can sign up for other upcoming events. Um, join our email list to hear about them uh, or events when they're announced. Um, and I also encourage you to listen to our podcast, A Health Policy. And again, uh, I encourage you to look at the, um, the CMS report that was the basis for our um, conversation today. Um, it, the, uh, it was published on uh, December 15th as an ahead of print. You can find that on, on healthaffairs.org as well. Um, and with that, again, I just want to thank um, Craig and Sherry so much for joining us today. Wish everyone um, a, a happy and safe rest of your week. And with that, we are adjourned. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.